Welcome to the Courtside Culture Podcast, where we talk about using communication and the power of positive psychology to build a great team culture. Hey, Hoopheads, we appreciate you listening to this episode of Courtside Culture. Be sure to check out these other coaching podcasts on the Hoopheads Podcast Network, including Thrive with Trevor Huffman, Beyond the Ball, the CoachMaze.com Podcast, Players Court, Bleachers and Boards, and The Green Light, plus our NBA team-focused podcasts, Cavalier Central, Knock If You Buck, 305 Culture, Spanning the Spurs, Daily Thunder, Motor City Hoops, X's and O's NBA Breakdown, LA Hoops, The Wizards Hoops Analyst, At The Buzzer, and Lakers Fast Break. Oh, and don't forget to check out our flagship, the Hoopheads Podcast, hosted by me, Mike Cleansing, and my co-host, Jason Sunkel, featuring the best minds in the game, from grassroots to the NBA. Hey, Hoopheads, we all hate ankle sprains, and they happen way too often. Ankle injuries are the number one sports-related injury. Arise is trying to change that. With the iFast, your athletes get preventative protection and full mobility. Athletes no longer need to wear bulky braces that limit performance and give mediocre protection. Anyone playing sports should be using these products. Keep your athletes in the game. Don't wait for them to get hurt to take action. Visit www.arise.com slash team pricing to learn more. That's A-R-Y-S-E dot com. Hello and welcome to the Courtside Culture Podcast. I'm Dave Grinjinski, and today we're talking to Dr. Chris Eyring. She is the former director of clinical and sports psychology for the University of Wisconsin Badgers. She helped to implement mental health and performance psychology services for Wisconsin's athletes. And she speaks from experience because she is also a former University of Wisconsin track star, having been a part of four Big Ten outdoor conference championship teams, and she broke two Badger indoor records. She's now leading her dream, supporting athletes and others with their mental health needs and not just in sports. Dr. Irene, thank you so much for joining us on the Courtside Culture Podcast. I'm really happy to be here. So thanks for asking me to be part of this great program. Well, I appreciate it because, you know, on the podcast, we do talk a lot about how coaches can build good team cultures. But to me, the mental health of the players, the athletes, has a lot to do with it. So I want to spend a little bit of time connecting the dots between mental health and team culture. But first, May is Mental Health Awareness Month. So it's great timing that we have you today, Dr. Irene. Mm -hmm. And so my first question to you is what led you to do what you're doing today? Uh, Great question. It goes back a ways for me. But um, when I was a kid, I was competing in track and I really wanted to be a badger uh, because I grew up in Wisconsin. And uh, my dad was a sprinter. And then I became a sprinter in high school. uh, Ended up at Wisconsin. But when I got here, I have to tell you, I was so intimidated. Came from a really small village probably more people in the dorm that I lived in than, um, than uh, my village. And I looked at the track roster and the people I was competing against, and I knew some of the names, and I panicked. And I remember I was a, at a big race. Uh, I was at New York, and I was thinking, if I don't get this under control, I, I can't compete. 
So I actually sought out a sports psychologist when I was a freshman runner at Wisconsin. I ended up talking to Dr. Bill Morgan, who was running the sports psychology program at the time. And I actually ended up working in his lab. But he worked with me a little bit on the whole aspect of performance. And that's what got me interested in the topic. And I, I love psychology and I love sports. And I thought, fantastic. This is, this is a great blend. I hope someday I can help other athletes. Well, it's, I mean, that's a credit to you to recognize the fact that, you know, you needed to help manage your mental health. So do you still, I mean, did you see that even back then, were you seeing other athletes that maybe struggled with their mental health and then took what you learned and and try to help them even at that time? Absolutely. You know, athletes are under a lot of pressure. What people see are more the races or, you know, the the gear they get to wear, but you don't really understand some of the pressure of practicing and, you know, being sort of on the spotlight occasionally and what that's like, or even for just for yourself, the pressure you put on yourself, I think sometimes is enormous. And I learned that, like, I I actually was putting too much pressure on myself to, you know, accomplish too much too fast and just really had to figure out how to relax because nothing, the size, you know, the track distance stayed the same. What really changed was what I thought about it in between my head. And I I really had to get an understanding of that, how to rework the pressure off and how to come back and actually like running again, like sprinting, like competing. That helped enormously. And yes, I saw lots of other teammates and other athletes and other sports struggling. I was not the only one. So I, I, you know, going back to my, my research when I first found you online, I I think I remember like, there may be some connection to positive psychology in you. Were you one of the first early, were you an early adopter of positive psychology? What are your thoughts on positive I psychology? I am a huge proponent of it. And what I have learned is I think it's misunderstood. I think people think, oh, you just think positive and that, that's, that's it and that doesn't really work. But it's so different. I think it's truly learning how to coach yourself inside. I mean, how many people are going to do good under constant negativity from yourself or from someone else. If a coach walked around you all day long and all he or she said was negative connotations, after a while you'd be like, God, I am stressed. We do the same thing internally. And I, I had to get a grasp of that, that really mind management is big, at least for me personally, and I'm a big believer in how you do it. And I think one of the ways to do it is to be positive in that you say, yes, this is in the direction I want to go, or this is what I, what I want to do, or this is how I want to think. That's how I think it's positive. Like you're directing it rather than being directed by yourself or your internal negative person. It, it, are those, and those are the kind of techniques, were you being taught those techniques when you were running at Wisconsin and applying them? Or was this something you picked up on uh, even after you graduated? I'd say both. So I remember as a kid, I did something that, you know, I'm going to admit out loud. I used to write little notes around the house, leaving for my dad. My dad has his business in our house. And I'd say, Chris is great. Chris is number one. Um, and I, I actually turned back to some of that psychology because I, I was a prolific reader. I really wanted to understand um, the mental game because I'm, I'm a small person. And I realized if I'm actually going to compete at Division One, I, I have to figure out the mental game because physiologically, I'm probably not the person built naturally, um, so to speak, like big and muscle. I I really worked for what I had. 
And so I began reading a lot and I would sit in class, like the beginning of every single class and like what I call written visualizations. I'd write out, like, you know, Chris is performing well, Chris is out of the blocks first. Um, because to me, I had to do something like on a daily basis, sort of like you, if you have a project on a daily basis or you're studying on a daily basis, it kind of goes in your head. And I actually think that and some great coaches that I had um, along the way who believed in some of this visualization or positive psychology. Uh, I remember Dave Anderson was a coach, a track coach. that He was here for a little bit. He was a big believer in it. So you get it from a couple angles. I did from reading, from other coaches, from trying to apply things, from Dr. Morgan. I took his class, sports psychology. So it was like a you know, a mirage of different things. Was it, looking back on it, was it when you got to Wisconsin and, and, and you were intimidated, you're, whatever it was that what you know, whether it was the size of the school, the, you know, the, the number of athletes, the people you were running up against, you know, when you look back on it now, was it something that you just felt at the time, did you feel like it was something you could control or was it like uncontrollable where you just couldn't stop it and couldn't get over the hump and you felt you needed that help? It's kind of a mixture. I, you know, in my mind, I really wanted to compete. I love competing. And I felt like I was just getting in my own way. I felt like I was talking myself out of, you know, what I could actually do. I remember I was standing at a big race and I just said, oh, I don't belong here. And I thought, there's no way I can continue to compete with that mentality. I've got to figure this out. And so I think I started to take that anxious energy and I started to channel it into like more solution, more more like how how do you how do you handle this? How do you do this? Because there's got to be something to this. And that led me really to seek out, like I said, advice. And then I started to manage it better and then use it. Because I think you have to have some adrenaline, some angst. To, you have to have a drive to perform well. And then it sort of turned to started, you know, to compete well. And then I started liking the challenge of it. And I remember saying, okay, all right, cool. Bring me the challenge. I want this challenge. And so my mindset slowly changed from not, I don't belong here to working on this, to like, okay, I'm starting to like it, to like, okay, now let's see what I can do. Okay, bring on the challenge. And when I started to have that mentality, I performed much better. Well, and you know, you've already mentioned a coach who who helped you along with this process. And then you also mentioned how when you have a coach that's filling your head with negative thoughts, it actually, you know, it works against, you know, your athletes. So how do you, I mean, do you, because this is where I feel the connection between a player's mental health and team culture kind of collide. Is this, how, is this the connection between mental health and, and team culture? The, the, the messages the players are getting, is that where it starts? Well, that's a great question. Uh, probably not one answer to that. Um, but I do think the way the culture is created is a lot of it in the language that's used. And like if you listen to podcasts, other podcasts, but like uh, the Seahawks, right? They talk about positive culture and the language they even use in the locker room becomes important and how you support each other and not putting other people down or derogatory language in the locker room. And then I think it goes, it spreads out. What are you demanding of your team? How do you, 
want each other to be supported. So one of the things I have to give Peter Teagan credit for, he was the coach when I was here, the head coach, was, you know, track can be a very individualistic sport, right? But he made us a team. And I think that's, our goal was always Big Ten championship because it was a team. You know, you either won it as a team or you lost it as a team. And he he made us, like, stick around and cheer for each other. He made us get to know each other the whole team, not just the sprinters, no sprinters, or the throwers, no throwers. He made us a team. And I, I think that takes a certain uh, awareness, emotional intelligence. How do you unite really different personalities, different events, and create a team culture? And that team culture was really positive. We had a team song we did when we won. Uh, you supported, you you cheered for other people at the race. You practiced, you made practice, you know, fun to go to. So I do think you're onto something with that because social connection is a buffer to mental health, to keep to good mental health. If you have good mental health, it means you have some strong social connections, strong friends. Your team can really be that social connection if you make it a good one. Your teammates can help you or hurt you. And I think that's where mental health is you know, can be positive or negatively influenced by how that team is structured to support each other or compete against each other. And sometimes competing against each other, some coaches do a great job at handling that, and some, I think, make it a a head game. And that's where I see other athletes really struggle. You know, how can this person do good, and then I'm bad, and if I do bad... You know, then this person's going to get playing time, so I have to beat my teammate out. I mean, how do you handle that? Because that's part of the game, right? But I think how that's handled creates a culture of one sort or another. Well, and, you know, you, you set me up here for, for where I want to go next because, you know, looking at you know the, the types of, of uh, things you help athletes or just, I mean, people in general work through one of those things is performance anxiety. And, and like, if you're an athlete, you can't focus on what you're trying to do. If you think, and, it, and if it happens continually and you know, it's going to happen, the first mistake you make, you're make, you're going to get pulled from the game. You can't function that way, whether you're playing a sport or even at work, you know, you have a job. If you, if you think that the first mistake you, you make, you're going to get your pay docked or something. Th- that's a very, that's very hard to, that's a very tough environment to work in. And so can you talk a little bit about performance anxiety and, and getting through it? That's a good analogy you just used. If at work, every time you did, you made a mistake, you were docked pay, it would be a really tough culture to stay in because we have to be allowed to error and then respond, right, and react and grow. We have to be, have some leeway because that's why we practice. Otherwise, you know, we, we you can't be perfect all the time, even in game situations. So the coaches, I think, that are much more process-oriented in how things occur versus just completely um, outcome focused is is also kind of a, the language we use in sports psych when, in terms of like how things happen, awareness and skills that can be taught, learned, improved, and that's the language where you're getting better. But you're right, when you're yanked, it's not every player that can rise back up after that. And performance anxiety to me is the you know you're you're overthinking. You have too many like squares open in your head, too many computer things. And, it, and if you're one of those is looking to the bench, what's the coach think of me as soon as I make an error? And one of them I have to c- 
completely come back after that era and now I've got to play, your focus is really shifting back and forth to multiple places when really you want your focus to be on the next you know, process of the game rather than what does coach think? What does my teammate think? Who does who thinks what in the stands? Like that isn't technically going to help you in that moment to play better. In fact, it's going to add more angst because now you have too many things to worry about. Does that make sense? Totally. And and I know one of the things you like to talk about is productive focus. Mm-hmm. And so I'd like for you to talk a little bit about that because I'm try I, I I I'm glad I have you because I'm trying to work it from both angles. I'm hoping that there are coaches out there listening to this to say, you know what, I never thought about that with my players. And and maybe there are players who are now popping into their heads saying, you know what? If I handle that situation a little bit differently, uh, there may have been a better outcome. You know, he may have been able to respond or she may have been able to respond. And instead, you know, yanking him every time and putting him on the bench probably made him worse, you know, and and it's not for a lack of talent. It was just everything that's between their ears. So if you can talk a little bit about that productive focus and how players can stay focused, even when the culture is bad, I'd really appreciate it. Oh, excellent. Yeah, focus. Focus is big, right? I think first we have to understand that our focus is a choice. And I think understanding mind management with that in mind is big. So a lot of athletes that I initially see aren't aware that where they put their focus is technically their choice. So the analogy I sometimes use is you're riding in a train. And on the right side of the train are this beautiful ocean and great scenery. And on the left side, when you look out those windows, there's garbage and there's, you know, it's not a very nice uh, place to look. So when you're riding the train, as in you're playing, where do you want your focus? The garbage seems to be really sometimes that allures us and draws us in. You have to ask, why am I over there? What's the point of looking at that? Sometimes that's our mistakes. We look, we learn, but then we've got to move ahead to the next process and change your focus. You have to look outside the other window and see what's going well. We want to know and we want to build on when you're successful, what's going well and how do we keep you understanding where that focus is when you're doing well. So productive focus to me is this choice you get to make and where you're putting your head. And when a coach is yelling at you and you're looking over at the bench, imagine what's all going through that person's mind. You know, what's the coach saying? What do I need to do? If, if you're worried about coach being mad at you and now you have to recover from a mistake, say you missed a layup and now you've got to get back. Your hope is you would come back with a productive focus, I'm going to guard well, but not to the point where I'm going to make a foul just to make up for that and and make sure that I over-hustle. But you actually want to come back and have a productive focus, recover. And if anything, if the coach can tell you what to do as opposed to not what to do, right, your brain will actually work a little bit quicker. It has a focus. Help that athlete get focused. If you say, go do this. That's much more productive instead of saying, stop doing that. Don't do that. Because then the athlete has to pause for a moment and think, okay, wait, what? What's my focus? Where do I want my focus to be? It's that split second thing. I think that really is helpful. But first and foremost, understand that where you put your focus as an athlete, your choice. Your choice. Your choice. And I, and I think you're absolutely right. When and, and this is the way that 
just, you know, in reading and the research that I've done and, and talking to super smart people like yourself on this podcast, the positive psychology for me is is focusing more on on strengthening what the athletes do well. Right. Um, and, and like you said, shifting the focus from, you know, you screwed up to, hey, you know what? You got back. That was great. You know, kind of you know, it's almost like that Oreo. Right. You got to you put the good stuff on the outside. Right. And you put the bad stuff in the middle. You know, I, I, am I on the right track with that, with positive psychology and the way coaches can shift their focus of, of delivering their message? Yeah. And I really like the way you just phrased that. So positive message to me is not just, hey, you did great, John. But hey, next time do this, or I want you to do this. It's a positive message. And in hypnosis, one of the things I was trained in a long time ago, that they often talked about the yes set and like helping approximate where you want an athlete to get to. So when they're starting to do things correctly, the ability to say, yes, that's it, that's it. Stay on that, move toward that, move toward that. That's positive psychology to me. Like you're helping sort of in micro goals help a person approximate the ultimate you know change or pattern or play they you want them to do but do it well and that's also coaching that person in that direction as opposed to damn it that's not right you didn't do that right again but you that's okay it has a place if you can follow up with the correction of that that's also positive psychology right so there's lots of ways to consider positive psychology beyond just you know, thinking positive. It's also thinking and using your focus in a productive way. I think another thing too for an athlete is, you know, this doesn't this isn't always game related. I think a lot of these negative thoughts can develop at practice. You know, whether it's you know, oh, because uh, you know the, the the kids can feel it. You they they, they played on enough teams to know when. You know who's who's going to get minutes, or you know, you know, or hey, coach is only talking to the same seven kids every every practice. The other the other five or six of us just kind of standing around looking at each other. Do you know what I mean? It's like it's like for and, and another thing you love to talk about is mindfulness, and not only for the athlete. I think dude, the athletes need to be mindful. You know, in order to to you know to to initiate productive focus and focus on what they you know what they really need to focus on at that moment, but I think coaches need to be mindful of of the way they're delivering the message as well. Like I said, just not in the game, but in practice, or just the mannerisms or the things that are going on. You know, if you're only talking to the same seven players, starting five, and you know the two the first two kids off the bench all the time. Be mindful of what that's going to do to the rest of your team, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it does affect the team. And, and having an awareness, again, of a unit of people that can work together, that that's an art and a skill. Uh, and I, I think, honestly, this is where not just mindfulness comes in, but growth mindset comes in, the ability to know that each player has potential. So sometimes I think coaches get fixed mindsets in that, well, he or she didn't do that yesterday and I don't think they can do that. And they sort of keep that mindset. Whereas a growth mindset would be like looking at everybody has the potential to improve. What's my role in that? How do I help that athlete keep improving instead of thinking that they can't? And I think the same goes for mindset. Some people think like you have a positive mindset or you don't. Again, I look at that as a skill. You can get better at that. 
And another one of those is confidence. How do we create and build confidence, which it's a myth that some athletes have it and some athletes don't, or someone just has natural talent and someone doesn't, so therefore they can't get better. I think the more that coaches can understand how we work together as people and and that the sense that confidence, mindset, growth mindset, mindfulness, these really go together to help create your culture of your team. And, and on an individual basis for every athlete to understand those concepts of how do I stay open-minded, but also aware, aware enough to know what I'm doing when things are going well and aware enough to know when I'm not performing, what do I do? If I don't understand what I do when I'm performing well, I don't have tools to go to when things aren't working well. That's growth mindset. That's confidence. That's mindfulness, though, the ability to be aware of where your head is at and understand how you can shift on purpose as needed for the situation. So if you are one of the five or six players, you know, and, and it could be any sport. I'm not just talking basketball here. I mean, it, or it could be at work, right? You right. Know, you, you know, you, you know, the boss talk, loves to talk to them, but you always seem to like, well, how come, how come he doesn't talk to me like that? How come she doesn't talk to me like that? Yeah. So if, if you are that person in that situation, how do they flip the script? How do they get control back? How do they get the, how do they use productive focus to, to let the coach know, like, look, I can play. I'm, you know, you know, you don't have to leave me out of this conversation or leave me off the floor. How would you recommend an athlete suggest to the coach? Look, coach, I'm here and I'm ready to play. Well, there's probably not one answer to that, (laughs) but definitely uh, change your first and foremost, change your focus to internally what do i do to get better at the game what 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 can i do to literally get better how often do i want to ask the coach or assistant coach that maybe you want to go every other week say i'm working on this what do you see and change you have to maybe seek that information if you're not getting it some athletes are pretty intimidated to do that and find that helpful some don't um the other shift then is back to yourself and the 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 ability to have the mental Um, strength to really work on your own personal PRs, as I would say. Like, how did I improve my game today? And this is where small goals become really important. What did I actually want to improve on today? And maybe it comes down to your mental game. How much do I want to worry what coach thinks? How much can I put my focus on something tangible today that I can accomplish, that I can measure? It might even be, I didn't think of coach not talking to me today. I stayed focused on the game. So sometimes I challenge people, if you're really struggling, to turn it into a mental gymnastics game and how do you get a stronger mental tool to stay focused on your game as opposed to what he or she thinks of you. And then to, because you're going to improve your game, hopefully. It's another way to get coaches attention, yes. Besides just talking well, to them or going and asking for feedback on, an, you know, ever so often, like, how else do you do it? Well, and, you know, you've touched on a couple of, of things that that I think are very important. Well, one, first of all, here you are going to the University of Wisconsin, Division One athlete, best of the best. You're going there and you're struggling with your confidence. You know, on the flip side of that, 
you know, now let's take it back to high, maybe high school kids or I mean, even even, you know, kids who are running in college. You have kids who are there and you said it. Not every kid is comfortable going up to the coach and, and asking questions or, you know, and I always tell it, I call it questioning an authority figure because I think that's what they're thinking. I, I can't go to the coach. What's the coach going to do? You know, he's, he's the authority figure. He knows everything he made, you know, he's already made up his mind, you know? And, and so that intimidation factor that is, that is there. Do you think it would help coaches? Again, we're talking about mindfulness, to, to recognize that in their players, to, you know, the ones who, I mean, there are always going to be some who are vocal. I mean, I, I, I mean, I coach, I coach my, my, my sons, you know, so I, I, you know, you got kids who will just tell you, tell you exactly what they're thinking every single time, which is great. But then you got a lot of kids who won't, they just won't do it. How, like, how does a coach balance that? Is it up to the coach to approach every player to make sure that their mental state is intact? Uh, yeah, I mean, mental. I I don't think you can separate the mental state of each athlete out of their game. And in fact, if if coaches would sit back sometimes and maybe just ask or think aloud to themselves, uh, hey, how come that person's not doing as well? Is there anything that going on with that person? Um, I know some coaches that do sort of anonymous check-ins. Uh, whether it's paper or some sort of sort of you know questionnaire that they're giving them uh, on a, you know certain time intervals, just checking in with how athletes are doing, and they can get a pulse on the someone's not doing well. Maybe they don't. Maybe it's anonymous. They don't know, but at least they know someone on their team is not doing well emotionally or mentally, and to be aware of. Uh, create their own mindfulness that, oh, I got someone on my team struggling or a couple people struggling. How do I want to address this? And I'm going to look out more for that. Maybe I'll curb my language a little bit if I get some feedback from that. But I, I like the idea that you're trying to promote coaches to have mindfulness about sort of the emotional health and the psychological health of their athletes because as that creates part of your culture. If those people aren't doing well, that's part of your energy of your culture, I believe. I, I don't think you can just skip it because you have five people doing well and two not. I mean, that that's part of... I look at the other five will look to that head coach or coach and see how you handle that. They see that too. The people who are doing well see how their coaches treat other people. They also come away with impressions about that and who they want to be. So you'll have some people maybe who are in the starting vibe see that happen. You hope that one of those two people notices, has enough awareness that they're also trying to bring in some of the people who aren't getting as much playing time or talking to them. I know other athletes do that on purpose because they have more emotional intelligence than some of their coach or maybe more time. But they are trying to get the team unit to help every member of that team. Yeah, you have no I mean, idea how big that is. You... Because then those teammates much more cheer on maybe the starting five, six, seven more and do other things. It creates synergy. And that's what you want. It, it, creates, an, it creates a great culture. You know, and that's one of the things that, that I like to bring up on on 
the podcast. And just from, you know, from my experience to, between watching and playing and, and coaching, you know, to me, you have to find a way to get every player engaged. And, you know, and I've told stories about, you know, some of the kids that I've had on, on my, on my team. And whether it's just, you go to the, you go to the kid and you say, listen, here's your, here's the deal. Here's your role. We need you for two, three, four minutes a game to go in there. When I put you in, we need rebounds. And you are the best rebounder on this team. Well, I mean, it may be true. It may be not, but for the purpose of defining the role for this player, who's only going to get two, three, four minutes a game, I, I think it's important to be very clear and give them a directive. You're our three and D guy. You're going to get ten or twelve minutes, you know, coming off the bench when we we need that spark. We need you to knock down a triple for us, get us going, get us back on track, right? You know, we need you to get to the rack, right? We need some we need some free throws. We got to stop the clock. We're down twelve. You know, the best easy way to catch up. We, we get to the line, the clock is stopped, but we're adding points. Like, to me, that just carving out the directive, the role for each one of the players, one through 12, one through 16, one through 53, if you're coaching a football team, I think really helps establish that culture and forms, and I love the word you use, forms that synergy. How crazy am I to think that? Oh, I think you're phenomenal. I wish what you just said is better than what I just said. How you can, if you can be transparent and you tell a person, this is what I need from you, you're direct. It's not passive aggressive. You're not like shunning that person. I don't really, you look past them. You know, kids notice when the coach, like their eyes pass them on the bench. But if you know your role and you know, like if you can say that to a coach, like a coach can say that to the person, like that's, that's it. This is what I need from you. It's it's very clear. This is your role. And you make it like, we really need you. We need your part in this. And that's a good coach. I think that's, again, coming, I'll come back to my experiences like Peter Teagan. It doesn't matter if you got one point or 10 points. We need all your points to win the Big Ten Championship. So you're all important. And, and so when you instill that sense of like, I want to contribute to this team however I can, if you can build that, that's how I think you build a successful culture and in turn a successful team. Because then every person knows my role is important. No matter what it is, two minutes or 28 minutes, it's important. Yeah, and I think they, they will take pride in that, don't Absolutely. you think? Like- I, I do. And, you know, they talk about the athlete's performance conforms to the coach's expectations um, and I think you're setting that up. This is my expectation, and the athlete will go ahead. But if you're never talking to that person, you're silent, you're not really – the athlete doesn't know how to conform to the coach's expectations besides to be, you know, overlooked. So if you can set it up and the athlete conforms to your expectations and gets on board with you, again, to me, I'm going to use the word synergy, now you've got good energy flowing on your team. You know, and I think, you know, when you get to the high school and then, you know, the, the college level, I think everybody could play at least a little bit, right? And they made it that far. They've probably been playing on, you know, whether it's AAU or, or, or summer teams or, you know, whatever it is they're doing. Everybody who's on the team can play. And so I, I just think that when, when you can coach up their strengths and, and you know, you know kind of, 
blend it all together. I just think that makes for a much better team than just kind of coaching, you know, your your the guys who you think are your best seven and, you know, you got these other guys who are just there to practice. Yeah, and I think the more the coach can actually know something about each athlete, what even, like, motivates them. Like if someone says, hey, I need you three or four minutes and you're that guy or you're that woman, we need your, we need your energy, we need your spark. Uh, you know, one of the things that even our coach talked about is – we need your voices. We need you all to be talking. We need you to be cheering. Your cheering helps people move. So like everyone maybe didn't compete, but everyone's voice could could be used. And, and so you're right. There's something that everybody can contribute as part of a team. It's really helpful if you find a way to engage them. And I think maybe it's an individual. Maybe it's individualized. You'd have something slightly individualized for each person that you know, so that person knows their role or knows how they can contribute. I think if a person knows how they can contribute and you make them feel excited about it or that's really important, they're more likely to get on board. So you mentioned the question there, but there are there any other off the court or off the field exercises that coaches can do with their teams to not only improve the player's mental health, but also improve culture at the same time. Like to give you an example, I've heard anything from, you know, uh, they're buying smoothies before a game because they think that's what's going to make them win to, you know, going to uh, like on a sabbatical almost, you know, and everybody ends up crying and holding hands and singing <laughs> Kumbaya. I mean, you know, so I, I've heard, I've heard things, you know, from both ends of the spectrum, but is there anything that you feel like is always really uh, a constructive way to to kind of stabilize the mental health of your players then and also create, start building a, a great team culture at the same time? I don't know if all coaches are going to like this, but I would say one of the ways, one of the ones, one example of a more of a stable contribution from each player is I'd be having them write one process goal or one mental goal they want to get better at in this particular practice or game. And then have them rate that at the end. Like, how did you improve? How would you be 6% better at this mental game, you know, aspect tomorrow? But the reason I keep using the word process is, hey, after that, you know, missed free throw, did you get back on defense? How would you rate yourself on that? It isn't the focus on the missed free throw. It's how did you get yourself to recover and come back? So that's what I mean by process. We're not just looking for points. We're looking for ways that you actually uh, contributed that maybe we hadn't thought about. But I'd be setting up note cards for each person like that in terms of one thing they want to do, better this game. That's a little bit process-oriented. That's everyone can do something that's process-oriented, whether it's hustle, whether it's re, you know recover, whether it's, hey, I vocalized a lot. I cheered on my teammate. I was out there like... Everyone gets one of those and you you have your sense of like one thing I know I can do better today. But in terms of like after that, it's what you do with it. You know, some athletes, I would love to know what they thought about their process goal, what they did. What would they want to do different? How would they want to contribute? And it gets gets you sort of thinking outside the box too. Maybe as a coach, you don't know everything. They've got ideas too. I would always utilize every player I've got in some sense because, you know, six, 10, 12 thinking heads are a whole lot better than one or two. I, I totally agree. And, and, and I'm, I'm very curious to hear your answer to this question. Do you think 
at this where we're, where we are today in, in, in the world of sports, do you think coaches should just come to understand that mental training or, or, or psychology, whether it's by positive psychology or productive focus, call it whatever you want, is now as much a part of sports as whether like layup drills or going getting in a cage or going out to the range to hit balls? I mean, are we at that point where the, the mental aspect of the games we play is that important? Yes. I think emotional intelligence, the ability to read people, the ability to communicate in a constructive way are here to stay right now. I think some of the old style, you know, systems of top-down authority configurations of delivering messages, I think are are not as helpful anymore. And I really don't know how you can separate the emotional well-being of an, a person who happens to be your athlete from a from the game and how you're treating them. So it's you coaches need to realize like that person leaves your practice, leaves your game. They're a human being. They're going to go off and they're going to ponder what just happened to them. So I see athletes in my office who are struggling months down the road because something a coach said to them and they're still anxious, upset, depressed didn't perform well, was compared to somebody, or, you know, that's that leaves an effect on people. And so first and foremost, athletes are humans. And how you talk to them as another human has an impact on them. They take that emotional stuff, and that goes to other parts of their life. So I don't know anymore how you can divorce that and how you can't consider the emotional intelligence of yourself as a coach and how you want to communicate, how you communicate as being so important to the development of these people. I'll tell you, I knew you were the perfect person for my podcast when, when I found you online. Thank you, internet. <laughs> because <laughs> like, like I, I honestly, this is, this is exactly what this is, is all about. It's just, you know, just trying to just at least put it on, coaches radars to understand like you know they you know I, I know actions speak louder than words but words man they they can have so, words and actions i mean they can have such a negative effect on a player you know a negative consequence without the coach even knowing and i just hope that that discussions like the ones you know we're having here on this podcast help coaches to realize that and what you just said there to is is exactly the reason I'm doing this podcast. So I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm happy you're doing it too. But I, I think for so long, um, there's a good article written on elite athletes mental health by um, Dr. Claudia Reardon and Brian Hainline, who's the NCAA medical exec, uh, medical director, talking about um, athletes are human first. And athletes have mental health issues sometimes because of their, they are under so much pressure that are more significant than other people not in athletics because of the pressures they're under. And so to disregard that or just assume they're just tough or they can just take it is wrong. Uh, the first point, the very first part of that article they wrote was athletes are human. They're human first. They have emotions. Yep. They have psyches. They're affected by the pressure and by the culture of the sport. Yeah, and we're talking about young athletes too, which makes it even that more critical. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm seeing okay, thirteen year old, twelve year old kids. Yeah. Some of this stuff we're really impacted. 
No, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And so now if there's somebody out there who's who's here in the podcast and wants to get in touch with you to take advantage of the, the help that you can provide, how can they reach you? Um, they can go on the web. I have a web page, uh, Dr. Chris Eyring, um, and I have a form on there. They, they, they just reach out to me. goes right to my email. Happy to connect if anybody has questions or thoughts. I'd be love to love to hear from you. Well, and that'll be, well, it'll be in the show notes of the podcast and, you know, and that's how I found you. And like I said, I, I thought that you would be perfect uh, to have on this podcast. Now, I know because I know you're tight on time and I, I want to make sure we get what's the coolest in here. And then also first things last, because you might have the best first things last that uh, we've had so far. So we're going to get to that. So first of all, though, like this is the time of the podcast where we ask our, our coaches, our guests, What's the coolest place you played? You watched a game, um, but in your case, it may be what's the coolest place you ran, or or you know, or or watched a track beat. What is the coolest, Doctor Iring? Well, my coolest moment has to be when I was eighteen. I was running uh, USATAC out at UCLA, and I had really crappy spikes. And Wilt Chamberlain was standing there, and uh, I asked my coach who he was because he was incredibly tall as you can imagine and he looked at my spikes and he said you're gonna wear those and I said yes so he left the track and he comes back and he gives me my first pair of brand new Nike blue spikes so I always will treasure that and um and and I'm very very grateful for those first spikes so wait a minute so this is a combination of what's the coolest and first things last. Because your first <laughs> pair of spikes comes from Will Chamberlain, which is the coolest. Did you talk to him and ask him why? Why you? Like what? What's the? You know, was there I have no idea. I was I was about getting ready to race, and I had no idea at the time. He he sponsored a track club. I didn't I didn't know that. So he obviously had athletes there competing, and you know. I just had really crappy pair of spikes with her from my high school. We didn't even have our own personal spikes at that mo moment in time. It sort of, it's a different era now. So, I mean, he literally didn't say a word. He literally just came back and handed me <laughs> this box of spikes. And then I had to go race. And, um, and then my coach, I think, talked to him after that and thanked him. But I, I actually didn't even see him after that. And I've always, he has no idea how much he... Think of it, you know, think of 18 years old, Will Chamberlain giving you first spikes. I, I just thought uh, it really touched me. And so as a result, occasionally I have um, actually paid it forward and and paid for a pair of uh, shoes for a high school athlete anonymously. That is a phenomenal story. And where are the spikes today? Well, they're in Chris's closet. <laughs> still have them really yeah i still have How those you, oh my gosh i'd have those on display are you kidding me the will chamberlain spikes yeah the will chamberlain spikes no one even probably knows very few people even know that story but that's my story that is great but you are the first ever combination what's the coolest first things last so you're now you're a legend on two parts <laughs> that's great that that no, that's that that is an outstanding story. When you mentioned that to me, I was like, oh, this is that's I can't wait to, to get to that. Dr. Irene, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to come on and, and share your thoughts. And honestly, I'd love to have you back because I could I mean there are so many different angles um 
you know, with athletes and mental health that, that I can take with you. I just think that uh, you're great and the work that you do and the experience that you have is what I think is critical because you've been there. Not, you know, you've been that athlete who has had those confidence issues and you you overcame them. And that's why, to me, you are the absolute perfect person to learn from, whether you're an athlete or a coach. And I can't thank you enough. Awesome. Thank you. Really, thanks for having me. I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, happy to do it again sometime. Okay, we will plan on it. And remember, folks, if you know a great coach who's doing great things, winning games and building a great team culture at the same time, I want to hear about them. We may even ask them to be a future guest on the podcast. You can reach out to me on Twitter at CourtsidePod1 and on Facebook and Instagram at Courtside Culture Podcast. Remember, folks, build up your players' strengths, find them all a role, and you'll take them from good to great. We'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us on the Courtside Culture Podcast. And remember, build the good in your players instead of focusing on repairing the bad. Find your players a role, each and every one of them, and take them from good to great. We'll see you next time.